Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your faithfulness on this Sunday evening. You can take your Bibles this evening, and we're going to look at perhaps a letter that is not often looked at in your Bibles. It's the book of 3 John. Turn to 3 John. That's just before Jude, which is just before Revelation, if you need to find it. So you can flip to the end of your Bibles. And then just go back left a little bit, and then you'll run into 3 John. A small book, but I think it has a powerful truth for us to learn. Keep your finger there, though. I don't always take you to a lot of passages like I did this morning. But I want to read a couple verses as we get into the book of 3 John from the other book of 1 Corinthians. So keep your finger in 3 John I'm going to read a few verses from the very beginning of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. I think these, these verses kind of give us a good portrait of what we see in the church and especially what we will see in the letter, to, uh, in the letter of 3 John. Look at verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. These verses convey to us, I think, an emboldening truth, which is the fact that God uses these people to further his kingdom. The people that he describes here, he describes as weak, he describes as foolish, the, the things which are despised. God hath chosen, God uses weak and foolish and feeble people as the people to proclaim his glorious truth. And to me, that's emboldening because I know how weak and foolish I am. <laughs> I know that I can boast in this glorious fact that God is using me because I know how weak and foolish I am. And he says this to this Corinthian church. And he's reminding them that it's God's prerogative to assign such a great mandate as the Great Commission for people like this. For people who are weak and who are foolish, who are um, uh, people who are despised by the world. To them, he assigns the great commission to broadcast his good news in this world. And it's for this very reason, because look at uh, verse 31, where he writes at the end, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Obviously, if we are weak and we don't have any strength in ourselves, the only thing that we can boast in, the only thing that we can glory in is God himself. Such is why he uses weak people. Such is why he uses people who are often uh, foolish, who are often failures. It's because the only thing that they can boast in is the Lord himself. We don't get any of the glory. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at 3 John now. Because I think 3 John, as an entire book, and it's only 14 verses, speaks to this point uh, very excellently. And it shows this gracious choice of our Heavenly Father to use people, uh, people that are children in the faith, to His great purposes. 
Third John, uh, as we read here, is only 14 verses, but I think it conveys a powerful and a candid message about hearing the truth, but also about doing the truth as well. Let's just read all 14 verses tonight to give you a sense of the letter. John, the apostle, writes, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, whom loveth... Who loveth to have the preeminence among them receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius has a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Only 14 verses. But we can clearly see that this letter is an extremely practical one. It's written by the Apostle John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, if you remember from the Gospels. He's also the Apostle that would go on to write the book of Revelation as well. And he writes this letter to this man named Gaius. And I think it's so important that we remember that it is a letter. You know, these, much of your New Testament is made up of letters or epistles, as they're called in your, in your Bibles. The epistle to the Corinthian church, or the epistle to the Ephesian church, or what have you. And here we have the third epistle of John. But we have to remember that this isn't just a doctrinal book. It's not just some doctrinal words that we have to speak to us, just flat truths. These are letters. They were letters written by a person to other people. They were letters written by, um, uh, by uh, people with personalities. I think oftentimes, I, I know I speak for myself sometimes, if you're reading the Bible, you can read it in sort of a, a flat kind of doctrinal way, then you, can't, and you don't often remember the fact that there was personality in the writing. There was people who were speaking through these words to other people for specific times. I think it's important that we remember that these were normal letters written to normal people with normal lives. And such is this letter. It's an intimate letter. One from the Apostle John who is uh, the Apostle of Love as he's also uh, been so called. And he's writing to this one named Gaius. Gaius is one who is a beloved friend of the Apostle John. 
And it's unclear sort of who this identity, of the identity of this man, other than his name, Gaius. Now the name Gaius appears four other times in your New Testament. You can read about him in Acts chapter 19, Romans, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20. You can read about Gaius in Romans 16 and also 1 Corinthians 1 later on in that chapter as well. But there's no real reason to link these names together. It's not clear from scriptures that it's talking about the same man, Gaius, in all of those places. And rather, I would actually say it's, it's not really necessary to do so. And any connection that might be between those names is just a conjecture. And in fact, also, Gaius was a, actually a popular name in the first century when John was writing. It's almost like you would be writing to a John or a Michael today. It's a popular name. But we know very certainly that he loves this man. John writes in verse 1, whom I love in the truth. Gaius is a brother in the faith who is doing faithful ministry work. And his testimony is remembered forever. It's remembered forever in this letter. And since this is the eternal word of God, he has a testimony that is eternal. And I think that says something. John loved Gaius. And four verses, or excuse me, in four times, in 14 verses, he calls this one, Gaius, beloved. In verse 1, he says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. Verse 2, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Verse number 5, beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. And then verse 11, beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He's writing to a dear friend. He's writing to one he considers a close brother in the faith. Gaius was obviously a comrade, a compatriot in what the apostles were doing. He was an intricate, uh, an important uh, um, uh, person in their ministry in the early days of the church. And John was concerned for him. He was concerned for his ministry and he was concerned also for his health. He prays for his just practical uh, physical health in verse number 2. Where he says, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Even as thy soul prospereth. His concern clearly from this letter was both for the physical and spiritual health of this ministry of Gaius. And this was characteristic of all the Apostle John's writing. Uh, He never speaks in an irritated tone. He speaks as a loving father, a loving brother coming alongside his siblings. And he writes as someone who cares deeply about about those who he is writing. And this is such a letter. It's another letter of love from the Apostle John. He's writing to this one Gaius. Gaius who is remembered and his testimony goes before him. And I think how Gaius is remembered is important for us. So very quickly, I have three little points I want to go through. Because I think in this little letter of 14 verses, I think we have three distinct testimonies that are before us. Three distinct testimonies. In verses 5 through 8, very quickly, number 1, I think we have a testimony of deference. Look again, verse number 5. Paul, or excuse me, John writes, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to 
the truth. A testimony of deference. Gaius obviously was a gospel-centered man. He was a man who was saved under the Apostle John's ministry most likely. And he was one who is now helping in the ministry of the truth. He wasn't a preacher though. He wasn't one who was standing behind pulpits expounding the apostles' doctrine from Scripture. He had a different ministry. One that was no less, though, important or significant. You see here in these verses that uh, he was helping the itinerant preachers of the day. Look at verse, again, number uh, 6. Or, excuse me, um, number 5, where he says, Beloved, thou doest faithfully... Whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. You see the apostles in the early days of the church were uh, discipling and teaching other and employing other ministers to go about and visit and strengthen the churches. They were establishing churches in all of these uh, cities in the first century. And so they couldn't always be there at all times. And so they would disciple other preachers to go and strengthen the churches in the apostles' doctrine, as you might, as you might call it. The sound doctrine with which Paul writes to Timothy in the later in the pastoral epistles. You can kind of think about them as almost modern day evangelists. They were going about preaching in churches, visiting them, strengthening them, discipling them in the truth of God's gospel. And they would travel to different churches and reaffirm the apostles' doctrine. And these preachers relied solely on the charity of the church. It says in verse 7, they were taking nothing of the Gentiles. That is, you can also relate that as pagans. They weren't taking support from pagan sources. They weren't taking money from perhaps the Roman government, which might then tell them what they could and could not preach. They were take, relying solely on the bene- beneficence of the church with which to go forward and preach God's new good news. They were going, as it says in that verse, for his name's sake. They were sacrificing their time and their energies for the sake of God's gospel. And they needed so many help, so much help as they did this, as they traveled and preached. And such was Gaius' ministry. These same preachers testified to Gaius' graciousness and hospitality. Look at verse 6. John is writing. He's saying, these brethren and strangers have borne witness Of your charity before the church. They've testified to the fact that you have helped them immensely. You've housed them. You've brought them in. You've given them aid. You've given them support. You've given them rest and a time to recoup from their travels. And you are doing a good ministry, John is saying. John is confirming this one's ministry. He's confirming Gaius' importance. He's encouraging him to continue on in this ministry of hospitality. To continue this gracious uh, ministry of hospitality so that the preachers of grace here can go on and continue spreading the message of grace. He's pointing out the significance of perhaps a ministry that Gaius thought a small thing. I'm just giving them housing. I'm just giving them food and bread and, and rest. And John is writing to say to him, your ministry to these preachers is absolutely significant. Your ministry is not unnoticed. And actually, as John, the apostle, is affirming this uh, hospitality ministry, he's giving a lot of weight to something that might seem so small. 
You see, in, in these first century days, the uh, ministry of hospitality was considered a sacred duty. It was considered one that carried a lot of divine weight to it. And there were few sort of nobler callings that um, uh, one in the church would uh, want to participate in. One who could open their heart and their home to these who are specially a call, called to speak the truth. And Gaius showed grace and welcoming both brothers, those whom he knew, and also strangers. He says in verse 5, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, those that you know, those that you don't know, you are testifying to God's grace as you house them to go out and preach God's grace. You are an important part of the ministry, guys, John is saying. And this, I think, is a practical byproduct, a practical fruit of the faith that we have when the gospel is implanted in our hearts, in our lives. It gives us a testimony of deference, a testimony of putting others' needs ahead of our own. And it makes you a part of an important ministry. As he says here in verse number 8, he says, We therefore are to receive such That we might be fellow helpers to the truth. In housing the truth you might say. Gaius was becoming an ally of the truth. He was becoming a part of this ministry. This uh, gospel of the kingdom. As it was going abroad all throughout the lands in the first century. Gaius was playing a role in that. And John was reminding him of that. You have a role to play Gaius. And I think the message is the same for us. The message is the same for us as we come to church in the 21st century. That each of us has a role to play in the church. That nothing is unimportant to God. Whether we're cleaning bathrooms or whether we're, we're, we're washing floors or washing windows. Or whether we are teaching a Sunday school class or teaching a children's ministry. Or whatever we are doing in the church is a, is a role that we are playing in the furtherance of God's kingdom. Or whether even doing something out in the workforce. You are playing a role in furthering God's kingdom. And that's because as a child of God, you have a part to play in God's eternal purpose. You're not just some uh, vessel who has no uh, use, who has no role, who has no function. You are playing an important role as you minister to the truth. With your family, with your friends, with your, with your co-workers, with whoever you are around. You are witnessing uh, to the truth. You are witnessing Christ's gospel to them. And such was Gaius' ministry. Perhaps, yes, he thought it was small. Perhaps he, yes, thought it was insignificant. But John was reminding him that this charity, Gaius' ministry of charity, was allowing him to do far more for the ministry of the kingdom than he ever thought possible. He, where he could not go, where Gaius was not practically able to go, his support was going. His financial support was going. His prayer support was going. As he was housing the truth, he was allied with the truth, and he was uh, sending out the truth by the very same ministry. I think such is how we have to look at our own ministries back home. You know, we're not all called to go to some foreign land with spreading the, the, the good news of God. 
But yes, as we support ministries, missionaries with either prayer or finances, we are, they, that is going where we cannot go. It's going far beyond the reaches of our own practical lives. And as we are funding and praying for and supporting the truth, yes, like Gaius, we are aligning and aligning ourselves with the truth. Such is a testimony I pray to have. A testimony of deference. A testimony of one that speaks to the truth of God's word. And this was Gaius' testimony. One that is remembered forever. It's a testimony of grace in deference, all for the sake of Jesus' name, as it says in verse 7 again, for his name's sake. They went forth. For his name's sake, Gaius was housing people in his own home and giving them whatever they needed in order for them to go out and further spread the truth for his name's sake. This is a testimony. Of deference. But look again at verses 9 through 11. We have our second testimony here, which is a testimony of dominance. Look at verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. We read here of this one named Diotrephes. And in stark contrast to the testimony of Gaius is the testimony of Diotrephes. The gap between these two men could not be wider, even, yes, in this small letter. This, diat- this one Diotrephes is remembered forever in God's eternal word as one who loved to have the preeminence. And one who was using malicious words in there in verse number 10 against the church. Not much is known Uh, About this man Diotrephes. Other than the fact that he was most likely. A very authoritative elder or deacon in the church. And he was using that office. That position to sort of use and assert authority. uh, His way. He was trying to pull people his way. uh, In the church. And as the apostles were coming in. And and trying to affirm uh, their doctrine. The apostles doctrine. He not wanting to give up control. Of whatever control he had. Was refusing and rejecting. These itinerant preachers. There in verse 10. He says. um, uh, Let's see where it says. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren. And forbiddeth them that would. And casteth them out of the church. He was using such derogatory language. That he was casting people out of the church. Who were housing these itinerant evangelists. All because he wanted to keep control for himself. He wanted the preeminence. He wanted the dominance. He didn't want to give up the control that he thought he had. And so to Diotrephes, his church order meant more than love for the Lord's servants. He loved more of the fact that he was maintaining some semblance of order in the church. Other than the fact of just giving of himself and giving of his time. That 
love for himself outweighed his love for Christ's sheep and Christ's servants. And I think that shows very clearly that Diotrephes did not understand the truth. He didn't understand the truth because he was not living for the truth. He was living for himself. He was living for the fact that he wanted to have the preeminence. He wanted first rank and first order and first notice. Such is John's language. That he's going to remember his deeds. (laughs) He was going to remember what he was doing and what he was saying against the church. And I think what we learn from this testimony of dominance is just the fact that our actions matter. What we do for God matters. Verse 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Yes, Our actions cannot save us. Our actions cannot uh, change our redemption. But they do show where our priorities lie. They do show and they reveal where our allegiance is. In living for the truth, you are aligning yourself with the truth. And you are displaying, testifying to all those around you that you are a person of the truth. Such is Gaius' testimony. And the opposite is what Diotrephes was testifying to. He was testifying forever that he is a person of himself. He loves himself and he wants to have himself to be preeminent. And so he is not allowing the truth to go forth. And thirdly, very quickly. Our third testimony is a testimony of deliverance. Look in verse 7 again. Because opposite of what Diotrephes was testifying to. Is what the preachers themselves were testifying to. It says in verse 7. I love that phrase. The very first phrase of verse 7. Because that for his name's sake they went forth. For the sake of Jesus' name. These preachers were traveling. And others were giving of their time. Of their energies. Of their finances. Of all that was in their lives. They were giving all for the sake of a name. It says, for his name's sake, they went forth. They were testifying to the deliverance of God by giving all of their energies to this name. And only one name could inspire this type of grace, this type of deference, this type of sacrifice. It is the name of Jesus alone. Jesus isn't even mentioned in this book, and yet he's all over it. Because only Jesus could inspire this type of giving. This type of living. This type of sacrificing. Because of his name's sake. Jesus' name alone. They were giving of this. And this name is representative of Jesus' entire person. It doesn't even have to mention all of the things that go along with the name of Jesus. And immediately we should think of the things that go along with the name of Jesus. When we say Jesus, we should think of his deliverance of us. We should think of his substitution for us. We should think of the fact that he has redeemed us from sin and hell forever by giving us his righteousness. One commentator said it this way. The name means the whole Christ as we know him or as we may know him from the book. 
in the dignity of his messiahship, in the mystery of his divinity, in the sweetness of his life, and in the depth of his words, in the gentleness of his heart, in the patience and propitiation of his sacrifice, in the might of his resurrection, in the glory of his ascension, in the energy of his present life and reigning work for us at the right hand of God. All these The central facts of the gospel are gathered together in that expression, the name. Which is the summing up in one mighty word, so to speak, which it is not possible for man to utter except in fragments of all that Jesus Christ is in himself and of all that he is and does for us. All of that is encapsulated when we say the name of Jesus. And when we live for the name of Jesus, we are testifying to these very truths. Jesus' name alone serves to inform and inspire all of our impulses and actions for the sake of the gospel. The knowledge of the truth of the gospel fills our hearts and minds and clothes our actions with charity. Such, it was, it, such as it was for Gaius. The gospel was so real to him that now he was exemplifying the truth by housing the truth. And the truth of Jesus' dying love for us draws out our deferential love for others. The more we rest and rely in the fact that Jesus has sacrificed his own life for us, we are inspired and empowered to sacrifice our lives for others. Sacrifice our time for others. Sacrifice uh, uh, our energies for others. That's because the more we know the truth, the more the truth will define us. The truth has defined Gaius forever. Foolishness and selfishness has defined Diotrephes forever. His is a testimony of dominance. Gaius is a testimony of deference. Which points to the deliverance of Jesus alone. That's because we as a, Christians, uh, as a Christian church, as Christian people, we are known for much more than mere principles or rules or morals or just uh, old wives' tales and fables. We, uh, when we evangelize people, when we go out and testify to the name of Jesus, uh, it means living for his name's sake. It means we exist for the sake of a person. This is what makes Christianity so much different than any other religion in the world. We have a living, breathing person residing in heaven for us right now. And it is his name that we are testifying to. It is his truth that we are proclaiming. He's not some dead poet or dead teacher or dead uh, uh, priest. He is a living prophet and priest and king for us right now. He's living forever in heaven. And he is a person. A person who really walked this earth. A person who really touched the dust that we have touched. Who has touched the ground that we have touched. He is a person who has gotten uh, grit and grime under his fingernails. He's a real person. Who has breathed our air. And who has died our death. The death that we deserve, we proclaim something uh, much more than just a mere system of religion. We proclaim a person. When we live for the truth, that's what we are testifying to. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As we love our neighbors deferentially, we are testifying to that deliverance which Jesus has delivered us by. A deliverance which came at his own expense, at the expense of his own life. He has delivered us. The ultimate expression of deferential love, of putting others before himself. And to the degree then that we are purposed to live for the truth, for the sake of Jesus' name, is the degree to which our lives will be defined by the truth and all that's implied by his name. The more we are discipled in the truth of God's word, the more this truth will come to define us. The more this truth will come and express itself in acts of deferential love and charity and kindness and goodness. Because this is where it's found. It's not found in us just obeying a system of rules. It's us remembering the fact that we have a person on whom we can forever and freely rely. Such is why we must ask ourselves then tonight. Who has your heart? Or we might ask it this way. Where is your heart invested Is it in yourself or is it in others? Is it in in seeking something for yourself or is it in in living for the sake of Jesus' name? Who is your priority? Who has your heart? That phrase, for the sake of Jesus' name, for his name's sake they went forth, has become so impressed upon my mind. What am I doing in this life if I'm not living for the sake of his name? Am I living to prop up myself? Or am I living to point to the true and better deliverer? The one who uh, expressed the ultimate form of deferential love on that cross. Who are you living for tonight? Who has your heart? Let us pray.